the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Udi Jasser, Dr. Jasser in the chair for Seth today. Bringing it home on our last hour here. It is an honor to be with all of you. And uh, as I noted before, I not only run a nonprofit that looks at uh, uh, countering radical Islam, but my day job uh, that I've uh, not only served uh, in the Navy doing as a doc, but now in private practice here in Phoenix since 1999, doing primary care, running internal medicine practice at the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. And uh, we are honored to be joined by my congressman now, Congressman David Schweikert. Uh, congressman Schweikert, thanks for being here today. No, and doctor, are you still taking new patients? Because my wife wanted me to ask you that. <laughs> Absolutely, I'd be honored. Thank you. My gosh, that that was not planned. Uh, please, <laughs> was, I, I'd no, be honored. No, no, I'm seriously. Hey, look, you're, as you already know, you're one of my favorite people out there because you know you've been willing to do some very difficult things. And you do them with a, a tone and a class and willingness to take on some of the craziness. Well, thank you. I'd be honored to. Uh, you know, this is uh, I run uh, a, a private practice section with the AMA, and uh, we are uh, many of us have sort of been those that will stay through thick and thin in the small business practice of medicine because we we enjoy and believe in the personal doctor-patient relationship to the point that regardless of the storms around us, regardless of the financial uh, pressures through pandemics and, and other things, we will continue to practice. So actually, I'm, I was so glad that uh, you were able to join us because every year they threaten us with Medicare cuts. They threaten us and say, and bring us to the brink. And then we're told that, oh, we won't do the Medicare cuts of 20%, but we'll leave you what you were before. And I can tell you now, as a small business uh, owner with 18 employees, uh, my expenses are increasing like everybody else for, oh, it, for supplies it, it, and it, everything. And even keeping me the same rate with Medicare is not going to help this year. And it's the classic problem of the squeeze is just out of control. My, as you know, my wife runs a large practice, so um, I hear this every single day of my life. And, and, and we run into this classic problem. Medicare is the primary driver of U.S. sovereign debt, and it's uncomfortable to talk about that, but in 29 years, the country has $112 trillion of publicly borrowed money, and that's in today's dollars, that's not inflated dollars, and 78% of that is just the shortfall in Medicare. And so some of the what happens is the, the, the you know, going at the the docs are going at certain procedures or those things instead of moving towards sort of the financing the revolution of, hey, 5% of the population with chronic conditions, our brothers and sisters out there who are really sick, are the majority of our health care spending. How do you get Congress to invest in things that cure people so Dr. Josser can take care of me, you know, it, it, it be my family physician, but if if I have some you know, disease or this and that, we know that 
a combination of you know the private industries, the universities, the incentives from us in Congress are to find cures, not just to be able to maintain the misery. Yeah, and I think the absence of the ability to balance bill, right? I mean, every other industry from legal profession oh, to yeah. accounting and other things, you have a fixed price. So no matter where you graduated in medical school, no matter whether you spend actually 20 minutes or 40 minutes with a patient, you have widgets that you get paid for. And uh, patients are unable to really uh, uh, vote with their feet or vote with their uh, uh, checkbook on what they want to spend. The insurance companies are doing that. And now we even tried to put forth this No Surprises Act, which seemed great mm-hmm. and that many of us were in support of. All, almost every doc I knew was in support of the No Surprises Act. But now we hear that actually the insurance companies put some poison pills in it that are going to make them in control of the arbitration process after. So it's like we can't win for we're, losing. We're work, and, and on that one, I will be hopeful. We're working through it because the draft that the administration did on that um, does not meet the language that passed. So that's one of another internal fights we're in the middle of right now. Oh, great. Because I was heavily involved in the drafting of the surprise billing. Um, and it, it's a crazy thing, but think of it this. How many of the urgent care centers, the emergency rooms, even you know here in the West, all across the country, are actually owned by venture capital firms? Yeah. It's it's amazing. They uh, so many specialty practices are owned by venture capital. I mean, it's it is uh, uh, no longer uh, uh, folks that really are that close to the bedside, and and uh, and people think it's free markets by being venture capitalists, but yet they're so far removed, it actually takes away the personal touch of the practice of medicine. Well, and and doctor, you know, we have to deal with the reality. Um, the vast majority of money spent in healthcare in the United States comes through government. And government has created a massive distortion in the price and incentives, um, particularly the incentives to stay healthy. And um, that is the, the great battle we're in, is do you legalize technology? Um, do you also um, really push for things that are curative? Um a good example, um, the new you know, messenger RNA technology where many diseases are becoming a software problem. How much better is the world that the fact that today we have a single shot cure for hemophilia, um, sickle cell anemia, which looks like we, we now have a cure for. A lot of these diseases that are just miserable, but the holy grail is diabetes. Thirty-one percent of all Medicare spending is just diabetes. If you could change diabetes, if you could cure diabetes, and it's complex, we know there's some stem cell breakthroughs. Um, I I hope the the peer-reviewed papers are real, but that's the holy grail. It's the single biggest thing you could do for U.S. sovereign debt and the ability to pay our family physicians to actually balance it's not to stop the erosion of the debt that's coming through Medicare right now. You know, it's amazing to me. You look at all the transformation of medicine since uh, the pandemic. Telehealth companies now, you see billion-dollar companies like Livongo buying out uh, Doximity and others all merging. Uh, that's all well and good. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you you make a very good point, which is government is most of medicine. And yet... 
when the Amazons of the world, which made their billions, if not trillions, made their billions on small businesses using their portal to sell their items, when it came to healthcare, Amazon decided to go internal and hire all their docs, and they didn't engage us small docs. I mean, I have a lot of Amazon mm-hmm. employees that see me, and yet Amazon decided to create their own internal healthcare company and are opening shops all over the country competing with us rather than working with us like they did in their own business model. How does that make any sense? It's like they want to destroy free market when, in fact, you know, it, it, it really sort of belies their own business model. It is it is interesting. Now, obviously, there's more to it. Um, it's the distortions of reimbursements, for, particularly from insurance companies, um, distortions in some parts of the country in licensing. Um, and it's one of those uh, occasions where you could crowdsource. And I know we're geeking out a little bit, so for everyone that's <laughs> listening, I'm sorry, but he's a friend. Um, you know, and there's this concept of, you know, you're walking around with a supercomputer in your pocket right now. How do we use that technology, A, to keep people healthier, and to provide them options to take care of themselves instead of government trying to be their medical provider? Yes, and and... You know, I think telehealth has added a lot of choice. I think it's great. I do think there needs well, to be some stratification, and I don't well, know how that's going to settle I need up. to throw you a crazy, crazy one. The telehealth legislation right now, that's my piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. I've had it for years. It, there was an army of lobbyists to stop it. You know, you had been amazed that the real estate investors who were fearful it would devalue their investment in urgent care centers, the hospital. I mean, there was a lot of lobbying against expanding telehealth, you know, using technology, whether it be from FaceTime to the thing you put on your chest that helps manage your hypertension. Right. Um, the day the pandemic is declared over, the expansion of reimbursements, the expansion of accessibility to telemedicine actually goes away. Wow. We're trying to fix that. But when they declare the pandemic over, um, much of what you're able to do in telehealth actually rolls back to pre-pandemic. Well, I can tell you... I can tell you, Congressman, that almost every doc I know knows that when they want to talk to a member of Congress that's helping us, that is helping patients, helping doctors, helping our health care system, you're at the top of the list. So thank you for all you do. Appreciate your time. Stay strong. And uh, God bless you. Thanks for being with us, Congressman Schreiker. Thank you, Judy. We'll be right back on the Seth Leapson Show. This is Judy Jasser filling in. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Raheel Raza from Canada about the latest in her battles against radical Islam. It's always great to be with all of you. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Judy Jasser in the seat for Seth Leibson on the Seth Leibson Show. We are talking about radical Islam. I'm going to be talking to Raheel Raza hopefully soon. We're getting her on the line. And, uh, you know, she had a fantastic piece uh, that I read uh, a a few weeks ago, and I thought it really... hit the nail on the head on where some of us are uh, on so many issues going on now. And uh, it was titled, uh, The Pandemic Has Thrown a Blanket Over Islamist Extremism. She said, there's a huge elephant in the rooms of Western democracies, and very few in the Western world want to know about the problem, let alone deal with it. Some of you may be tired of hearing me speak about political Islam. Sounds like something I've said before a.k.a. Islamism, but believe me, I will never tire of exposing the truth, Raheel writes in 
Canadian media. All Muslims are not Islamists, but all Islamists are hardly Muslim, and they use Islam to create havoc and evil. The pandemic has thrown a blanket over the heinous acts of these evildoers. There's a huge elephant in the room of Western democracies, and very few in the Western world want to know about the problem, let alone deal with it. And she then says, let me recap. From 2009 to 2016, there were 133 terror attacks on the West. From 2017 to 2020, there were 150 terror attacks. And then in 21, there were 12 terror attacks in the Western world. Too many for comfort, but not enough to wake up our leaders. And then she talked about the recent stabbing death of the British parliamentarian David Amos by 25-year-old Ali Harbi Ali, a Muslim Briton of Somali heritage. According to the BBC, Harbi Ali was once referred to the counter-terrorist prevent scheme some year ago, but was never a formal subject of interest. So she raises some excellent points about the fact that, you know, ultimately radical Islam is going to continue to grow. Radical Islam is going to continue to be a threat, and we are not fighting the ideology. We don't have an offense, and the pandemic has basically thrown a blanket over it. It's prevented our ability to fight to fight for those ideas. And the issue is, how do you do that? I think the Afghani conflict has shown that uh, there's no military solution. We're going to have to pull out our military. Uh, um, we can't continue to be the world's police. And I, I think most Americans have come to the agreement that that's not an option. But we are going to have to continue to do surgical attacks, surgical defense, uh, where it needs, where radical terror groups and cells coalesce. Um, but she notes, a regional police chief said earlier, there had been worries of men of a man having been radicalized, but neither police nor the domestic intelligence service elaborated or said why they flagged the individual that was then that found to have committed the attack with what they did or the information. So case after case, we find ISIS supporters, others that come through our nets, that come through our borders that are not vetted, or that even we find an attack in London that was done by somebody who had, had been actually training counterterrorism officers and officials in how to look for uh, radicalized individuals. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredulous. It is incredulous that we still have not developed an offensive policy in, in how to figure out who our allies are. And the Biden administration now has reinvigorated alliances with Islamist groups that are not only apologists, but actually working with the wrong folks. Did anybody notice that Congresswoman Ilhan Omar a few weeks ago put forth that she wanted to have a anti-Islamophobia czar? Yeah, she, she co-authored with Congresswoman Shankowski a bill that basically called for the development of a combating Islamophobia czar, an ambassador, if you will. Jan Schakowsky, Democrat from Illinois, and Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, introduced Combating International Islamophobia Act, legislation to address the rise in incidents of Islamophobia worldwide. The bill requires the State Department to create a special envoy 
for monitoring and combating Islamophobia. Now, what's Islamophobia? You know, that's a term, as any of you who follow our work, that I refuse to use. It, it is an intentional term put forth by Muslim-majority country regimes that want to suppress free speech. So they don't talk about Muslim dissidents. They don't talk about dissidents against their government. The Saudis, when they want to put in people in prison for disagreeing with their government, say that they've been put in because they violated the laws of Islam, that they spoke ill of Islam, when in fact they were criticizing the king. They spoke ill, they speak about sorcery, when in fact they were simply talking about technology. And Omar and Shakowsky's bill wanted to put on steroids the ability to have an ambassador, if you will, be able to filter what is and what is not appropriate speech. The year the United States, this year rather, according to uh, this report, had seen over 500 documented complaints. This is from CARE, the Islamist group, the Council on American-Islamic Relations that evolved from a group of Hamas supporters of anti-Muslim hate and bias. In recent studies, for example, in a separate study, it showed uh, uh, what they call an increase in epidemic proportions. And yet, most fair analysis shows that crimes against of hate against the Jewish community still are double, if not triple, that of any faith community, let alone the Muslim community. And, by the way, there, there has been a position uh, at the UN and also in the U.S. on uh, Ambassador for Combating Anti-Semitism, uh, but the bottom line is is that to compare the two, uh, I think, is, is in no way appropriate. We, we have yet to counter the ideas that are radicalizing Muslim youth, to counter the ideas uh, that were part of the um, uh, dictatorships that have arisen across the Middle East over the last century. And yet, somehow we are supposed to believe, according to Omar and Shakowsky and others, that the biggest problem is white supremacy in America. The biggest problem is anti-Muslim bigotry. And, you know, it's interesting. You watch the, the Virginia elections last week, and the victor, the attorney general-elect, I'm sorry, the lieutenant governor-elect, Winsome Sears, she gave a speech about how she came to the U.S. at the age of five, I think, how her family saw America as a beacon of freedom and liberty and how much she embraced her American identity in serving in the U.S. Marines as a veteran, how much she loved this country. And I just saw Winsome Sears' speech on the one hand and on the complete other 180-degree separation was Ilhan Omar's speech of uh, exclaiming that Americans were the terrorists in Somalia. America caused 9-11. America, uh, she says it with a chuckle and a laugh as she mentions al-Qaeda and conspiratorial matters and others. It's such two different stories. And yet, Winsome Sears is not seen on MSNBC or CNN. The narrative of, of Ilhan Omar is. The narrative of Islamists is. When we come back, we'll get uh, Rahil Raza on the line. And we'll be right back with you. This is Zudi Jasser on the Seth Leibson Show. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth Leibson, uh, bringing the program home here in the last half hour. And 
We'll leave the best for last. We are joined with Raheel Raza, good friend, and thanks for being with us, Raheel. We got you on the line. Pleasure. Thank you, Zodi. Awesome. Awesome. Raheel is one of the world's leaders in countering Islamism. She is a partner in our Muslim reform movement, and uh, she is uh, uh, the head of uh, uh, Muslims Facing Tomorrow and also formed a new group uh, of Muslims countering anti-Semitism. Do you want to tell us a little about that? Because I think it's relevant. When Before we got you on, Raheel, we were talking about I want to talk about Ilhan Omar's attempt to get an Islamophobia czar on, and also uh, um, I also mentioned that there certainly is an office to monitor and combat anti-Semitism, but this, to, to say that somehow Muslims need a similar office is a bit absurd at this point. But uh, tell us about your work against anti-Semitism, and uh, then we'll go from there. Thank you, Zudi. Thank you. Well, uh, looking exactly at what the likes of Ilhan Omar have been doing in terms of promoting anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, um, <laughs> constantly pushing the Islamophobia envelope, uh, we set out, uh, set up an organization called the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism. And the unique thing about this organization, there are many wonderful organizations countering anti-Semitism, but CMAA, as we call it, is all, only Muslims. We made a great, and as you know, Zudi, you are on it, uh, mm -hmm. on our steering committee. We made sure that the steering committee and the people running it are Muslim reformers. Uh, they understand the issue and that they're all speaking out, um, you know, in one voice as Muslims to say that no, anti-Semitism is not part of Islam and anti-Semitism is not part of what we want to see. Uh, here in the 21st century. And it's been, of course, growing by leaps and bounds, but uh, we are doing our best to counter it in every way that we can. You know, she, uh, Ilhan Omar formed a, a, they wrote a bill along with Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat from Illinois, talking about the need to form a global a position of, of a Muslim uh, or, or somebody monitoring global Islamophobia. And uh, I on my own podcast uh, at Reform This, uh, Blaze Podcast Network, I, I basically uh, uh, unraveled that and talked about how absurd that is and how, how much similar that is to the Minister of Information and the Saudi regime or the Turkish government or the Qataris or, or wherever it might be. But, you know, how do we unpack Shikowsky when she was asked about it? Uh, she's, I, I believe she's from the Jewish community. I might be wrong there, but she she compared it to the Office to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism, which is part of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. And it's an office that advocates U.S. policy and anti-Semitism, both in the U.S. and internationally. And obviously this arose out of the, the, the heinous crimes against humanity done with the Holocaust and others that I think the U.S. and others realized that we acted too late. Uh, now, now, what's the response, the best response to say that, listen, the, the Muslim community is not even anywhere near nearing needing this, and yet we still have a lot of internal work to do first. Of course we do, Zudi. And, you know, I feel silly uh, talking about Islamophobia. I mean, to <laughs> me, it's such a clever maneuver by the Islamists to shut the conversation, and I believe to a great extent they have succeeded because of the naivety of uh, Western leaders. Uh, it, you know, it, it's not unusual for Islamists to constantly compare and collate Islamophobia with anti-Semitism. But I have made it a point time and again when I speak about anti-Semitism to say it is definitely and clearly not one and the same. 
And so, uh, you know, this is such an important point. You know, anti-Semitism is uh, systemic, it is brutal, and what the Jews have faced and what they are facing now is nothing compared to what this victim ideology of Islamophobia is. See? So, uh, you know, this this point about asking questions, I mean... I'm an observant Muslim, and when our faith itself asks believers to ask questions, even our prophet was inundated with questions which were much harsher than the ones that people ask today. But as soon as someone asks a question about Islam, about um, the Quran, or about Muslims, they're slapped with an Islamophobia label. And I want to share with you that, uh, you know, I was born in Pakistan, and I still have ties, but I laugh uncontrollably when the Prime Minister Imran Khan lectures Westerners on Islamophobia. <laughs> when the situation in Pakistan for minorities, like Hindus, Christians, the Ahmadiyyas, is indescribably pathetic. But the Amen. point is that nobody wants to discuss those phobias, you know, Amen. which are alive and well in the Muslim land. So, uh, you know, Islamophobia has become the buzzword for all Muslim leaders. Yep. And this is what ties them together this, apart hold, from their differences. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. We're going to continue talking to Raheel Raza from Toronto, Canada on the radical Islamists and how to protect the world from anti-Semitism. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back. This is Zudi Jasser, Dr. Jasser, filling in for Seth Leibson on the Seth Leibson Show. And uh, I thought uh, it'd be very appropriate. Uh, You know, earlier we talked to Ryan Murrow with the Clarion Investigative Project, and uh, uh, I thought uh, it'd be best to end with Raheel Raza, my colleague, my friend at the uh, Muslim Reform Movement. Uh, she's also chair of the Council of Muslims Against Anti-Semitism and has just been uh, constantly ahead of the crowd, ahead of the pack, in leading us to, to find the right answers when it comes to the right way to fight radical Islam. And, uh, you know, before you, before you came on air, Raheel, we had, uh, I, I walked them through your piece, The Pandemic Has Thrown a Blanket Over Islamist Extremism, and uh, in there, you mentioned uh, uh, my comments about how when I was in Australia in 2019 on a, a speaking tour through there, um, we had engaged the um, Australian Federation of Islamic Councils. And it was clear within a few conversations of them talking to me, and then they refused to engage with us after that, that they were not only Islamists, but they did not want to be Australian. They rejected Australian national identity. And now, surprise, surprise, with the Taliban and America's embarrassing departure, uh, they were quick to defend the Taliban and engage them and gave them a a position to speak on behalf of Australian Muslims. So, you know, this pandemic has really blinded the West. And uh, while the only silver lining is that there's clearly now no military solution, I think the West is finally waking up to that. Uh, but where where's the light for us in what we're trying to do uh, forward? You know, I quoted you in that article, Zudi, because it was really important to connect the dots uh, for ordinary people and let them see that Islamism hasn't gone away. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's working its way all over the world, and unfortunately we have been so sidelined by the pandemic that we are not able to see. It is to their advantage and they're using it. Uh, misusing it is the word. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Taliban. I mean, how long is it before 
leaders of the Western world all start inviting the Taliban as a regular government and start having uh, conversations with them. You know, the, I'm very, very concerned about uh, what is happening there to the women and minorities because the official narrative in Afghanistan is that uh, this, these are the new Taliban. They're not as vicious as the old Taliban. So <laughs> this relative, in my opinion, they're more vicious, they're more cunning, they're younger, they're more intolerant, yet they have more weapons and more technology. They're the worst-case scenario, like ISIS, of how political Islam uh, can go bad. So, uh, you know, yes, Western countries are trying to take out the, you know, people who were loyal to them. But that does not do anything about the lives of the, the women, uh, the, the women who are living in the villages, the women who are living in the tribes. They are not the elite who can get visas and be taken out of the country, and you can't take everyone out anyway. What are we doing about the lives of those, those women? And I'll just very quickly quote to you that according to UNICEF, half of all deaths of Afghan women between the ages of 15 and 49 were attributed to untreated complications of pregnancy and childbirth. So, uh, you know, in 2017, Doctors Without Borders declared Afghanistan one of the most dangerous places on earth to have a baby. Now, this is after 20 years of the United States and NATO being there. So, uh, you know, Human Rights mm-hmm. Watch in 2017 reported that 16 years after the U.S.-led military intervention that ousted the Taliban government, an estimated two-thirds of Afghan girls don't go to school. And it's getting worse. So, you know, it's time uh, to pull up our socks and find a way to, uh, you know, to undermine the Taliban and for the world to look at them for who they are. They are evil. There's no other way of describing them. How suddenly does the civilized world think that the Taliban has become civilized? And I think... Exactly. I mean, this is the part is that, you know, for every listener out there, it's not just an internal Muslim issue. You know, you see Ennis Cantor, a, a, a professional NBA athlete with plays with the Celtics, has been leading this courageous sort of one man fight against the Chinese. Why? Because he wants to bring attention to what the plight of the Uyghurs is. Now, do you yeah. see any Islamist groups helping him? Absolutely not. Why? Because the Islamists, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Islamist of North America, all the Muslim Brotherhood groups in bed, not only with the Taliban and with the Khomeinis of the world, but in bed with the Turkish, the, the Erdogan regime and others. So at the end of the day, you've got this uh, Enes Kanter fighting Nike, fighting the NBA, trying to bring attention to it. And you see America's biggest threat right now is China. Australia is weak to Ch- China owns a significant amount of land and and threatens significant security issues within Australia also. So if for those people who think this is just a Muslim issue, remember a quarter of the world's population is Muslim. So if the Islamists win inside the Muslim communities, while these Islamic governments are working with the Chinas and the Russias of the world, we end up in the West being a minority. And I hope, you know, what do you think are ways to educate the communities about why these issues are important to them? Well, it's so important that we as reformist Muslims, and you are doing a great job on that, Zudi, that we keep on speaking out. We keep on telling the truth. It is so important. Uh, and we must convince Muslim communities not to blindly just vote for someone because they happen to be Muslim. 
but to look at the credentials, to read. And I find it ironic that the first word in our scripture, the Quran, is read, but we don't read. You know, everybody just, you know, it's a mass following. And this is how people like Ilhan Omar get elected. And once they're in office, then it's very hard to dislodge them. But they are just, you know, promoting an agenda. And it's so open and it's so clear. It's not just an opinion that you and I have, but in their own words, we know that this is there. And, you know, the the biggest elephant in the room in the Western world is the fact that we cannot name and shame the people who are misusing Islam, who are misusing the Quran, who are making it impossible uh, for us to lead, lead ordinary life. So, uh, you know, like the one person uh, march against the Uyghurs, uh, against the issue of Uyghurs in China, we have to continue to speak out. We have to come together and we have to, you know, create waves about what is happening. So when, you know, you will remember that about 15, 20 years ago, when the reformist Muslims used to say that beware of Islamists entering the corridors of power, people called us Islamists. They <laughs> called us fearmongers. Everything has eventually come true because people are not taking notice of the fact that this is an insidious, lethal program. And it continues everything that is connected to it, the Islam, Islamophobia ideology. And when we come what back... Exactly. And we've got one last segment, if you can stick with us, Raheel. You know, you have a couple parliamentarians, I think, up in Canada that are Muslim. We have Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib here and others. And it's not about fear of Islam. We love our faith as Muslims. Uh, But they are a political movement and they are working with the far left, the progressivists that are destroying our country right now in the United States uh, that Biden has empowered are working hand in glove with the Islamists, not only in America, but in Iran, across the Taliban and elsewhere. So this is a a synergy that has been working with them across the planet because their main enemy are those that defend freedom and democracy. When we come back, we'll look at exactly where we should be oriented when it comes to national security and our offense in the war against radical Islam. This is Udi Jasser, joined with Raheel Raza on The Seth Liebson Show. This is Udi Jasser. Closing out the show with Raheel Raza, the uh, head of the Council uh, Muslims Against Anti-Semitism, a leading organization, a coalition of many of us uh, uh, working to fight anti-Semitism. And I think one of the world's greatest sources of it is political Islam and Islamists and their supremacy. In the last few minutes, Raheel, I think, you know, it's interesting. We started uh, the, the show few hours ago, I was talking to some uh, flag officers that started an organization against critical race theory and uh, its infiltration into the schools, into military academies, into our military. And we see our friend, our good friend Ezra Nomani's uh, uh, all over the media working uh, in northern Virginia uh, to also expose what it's done to the educational system there. And she, mm-hmm. she hit the ground running because we, fighting Islamism, understood this immediately. And that's why, you know, people are like, well, what's she doing in this issue? Well, it was pretty natural because the CRT folks use the same playbook. So in the last minute and a half here, if you could sort of lay out for everybody how they can, you know, how we saw it coming with this sort of progressivist Islamist alliance. 
Well, the most important thing, Zudi, for us is to speak truth to power, and we have to band together. As you had said earlier on, this is not a battle that we can fight alone. This is a global battle, and we need to have supporters. But the main work has to come from within the Muslim world, from within Muslims, because everyone else will be slapped with the label of being racist, bigots, Islamophobes, etc. I mean, granted that xenophobia and bigotry, racism do exist, but we have to face them for what they are. You know, uh, Islamophobia, the term Islamophobia, just a crutch that is being used. Exactly. So we have to dismantle all these issues. The terminology needs to change. The dialogue needs to change. And we have to have an alternate narrative uh, for the people who are living in the West. We have to have an alternate narrative, which is, you know, at par with democracy, liberal values, our rights and freedoms, the freedoms of women, and we have and free speech. If free speech is curtailed, uh, we are finished. You know, this is exactly what the Islamists want. Yep. You know, they're laughing all the way to the bank. You know, the cancel culture has gone so much in their favor. It was amazing. So, I, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt you, but I, I, I mentioned before, Winsome Sears is an African-American immigrant from Jamaica. She won the election in Virginia for lieutenant governor. And her story narrative is completely opposite to that of Ilhan Omar. The left media, CNN, MSNBC, did not cover her campaign at all. It's almost as if she didn't exist. And she won. Right. While Ilhan Omar is all over the media. It's, it, well, we need exactly. to hear about Muslims well, you, like you. Well, we need to come together. We need to raise our voices. And we can never stop doing the work that we do. So I thank you for everything that you're doing, Zudi. I thank you for your support. And the fact is that we will continue to do this 24-7 because anti-Semitism is such a large part of Islamist extremism and political Islam, and it's growing by leaps and bounds in the Muslim world. And only we as Muslims can counter it. Amen. And educate, educate, educate. Get to know uh, uh, your local uh, uh, Muslim uh, uh, leaders. And uh, put them on the spot, uh, confront them, bring us in. Uh, Raheel and many of us in the reform movement are talking about these issues. Thank you so much. You've been kind with your time and so generous. And thanks for all that you do. Stay well, stay healthy, and uh, give my best to your family. Thanks, thanks, Raheel. God bless. Seth will be back soon. This is Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth on The Seth Leithman Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.